When you look at actual documentary films about Tammy Faye, and then if you look at fictionalized treatments of it, put those images side by side, if you will, and it's all on the same level, you know? It's, it's just, and that's where it succeeds. In this film, I just felt like, I know there's a real life basis to it and, and they know the subject matter, but sometimes it just seemed like silly without being particularly funny. Hello, welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're gonna talk about Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, and then a quick roundup of movies about Queen Elizabeth II who just passed. So Mike, let's start with Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which is based on a 2018 short of the same name and has, well, I think this is gonna be a controversial movie to discuss. So why don't you, why don't you kick it off? Oh, I see, you're turning it over <laughs> to me on that one. All right, I'll address some of the controversy at least. This film has promising subject matter. And ultimately I was disappointed in the film, but here's why. The subject matter is that the film is a satire of the prosperity gospel, if you will. So, you know, there's a mega church and, you know, the thing is just, you know, to get you to heaven, uh, if you will, but also you can do well while you're still on earth. So, you know, I'd be careful perhaps how I phrase it, but essentially in terms of prosperity gospel, that you know, you can have a great car, you can have a great house, you can have all these things and live a good life and, and also go to heaven. You can have it uh, always, right? You can have it on earth, you can have it in heaven. And I'm already starting to get into the satirical spirit of it that way. So I'll, I'll voice that off on the film itself. I'll remain neutral on the subject personally. But anyway, it is very promising material in terms of satire. And in fact, even the name of the church is, you know, wander to greater paths. I mean, it's just, you know, already they're having some fun with that. Now, where's the problem here? Okay. The problem is it's based on a short film, which I have not seen, but I know it was based on that. And what happens is when you take a short film and that kind of satirical send up, what's the satirical send up? Well, not even necessarily of the prosperity gospel itself, per se, but of the protagonist, specifically the, the male protagonist, the pastor, the fact that he's involved in a sexual scandal. And you can, you can you, you watch the film and you find out, you know, what, what trouble he got into. But in any event, members are leaving his church. It's about to go under, you know, how can he try to like redeem himself, re save the church, if you will, before it can save souls on its own? Now, again, you know, in a short film, you can pretty quickly deal with something like that. At feature length, here's what happens. There's a lot of reiteration of the central situation, which can be very funny. And there's a visual gag, a sight gag, that's really funny the first few times I see it, namely that the pastor and his wife, when they sit in side-by-side -side chairs, no exaggeration, these chairs are thrones. And so when you see the pastor and his wife in thrones directly addressing, they're addressing us in the sense that one of the interesting aspects of the film potentially is that they have hired a documentary film crew to document their rebuilding of the church. That's not gonna play out quite as well as he'd hoped, it, it, no surprise to tell you that, but the fact that you know they can sit in the thrones and talk right to us basically, because they're, they're explaining themselves and, and how they're gonna save the church and rebuild the flock and, and all that. That's funny the first time you see them in thrones, but how about like 10 times later? Yeah, I mean, it's always a, an amusing sight gag, but it starts to lose something there. So here's the real problem. You have a very basic premise by way of satire, and there is extensive reiteration of that premise. Scene after scene will play very slight variations on the basic setup. There is very little by way of either character development or narrative momentum. 
you really don't learn much more about them, their backgrounds, this and that. The story doesn't amount to too much of a story. There are some former members of the congregation that set up a church of their own to have a rivalry. Yeah, that's, that's enough of a narrative wrinkle, but there's no, otherwise not that much really to propel it to feature length, to 102 minutes, which is, which is what it is. So that's where the real disappointment is. It just sort of, you know, gives you more of the same. And I smile less as it goes along. That's where it's disappointing. Where it's very pleasing is in the central casting. Sterling K. Brown plays the pastor. And, and this is the real strong point in the film, Regina Hall plays the pastor's wife. She is terrific. I mean, you know, this is like an Oscar-worthy performance. She is wonderful in it. What I love so much about her performance is her husband clearly is a sinner. Her husband has failed in all sorts of ways, but he has a kind of like P.T. Barnum type personality. You can't keep him down. He's always going to bounce back. He can do this and so on. But we see enough and we hear enough to realize, number one, the scandal, which again, watch the film for details. But the fact that, you know, he's really, really, you know, he can be a kind of shady character in some ways. I mean, he's, he's, he's really not, you know, as a man of God, he's, you know, certainly lacking in various ways. So, okay, take that as a given. She's the pastor's loyal wife. And so as she presents herself to the documentary film crew camera, whether they're in the thrones or in other scenes, she's putting on her best face, quite literally. She's got this professional smile plastered on her face. And what Regina Hall does, which is quite remarkable, is she has her game face on, as we would oftentimes refer to it. But we, as viewers of the film, Honk for Jesus, we can tell, we can sense the tension behind that. She's in agony behind that smile. And the actor, Regina Hall, is so gifted with this that she's able to simultaneously convey the professional smile and the inner turmoil. And you don't even need lines of dialogue. In fact, it's better when, it, when it's not spoken out. It's better when you just see her there with that smile plastered on the face and, and your heart goes out to her, the, the kind of stress within her, what she's putting up with here. Marie, let me turn it back over to you because I think she really is, speaking of sal sin and salvation, she really is the, the near salvation of the film. She's like incredibly good in this film. I agree completely. Regina Hall is unbelievably great in this role. I also think Sterling K. Brown was surprising in it. And I will say that's the best part of the movie are those two performances, especially because I think they're really risky, especially for Sterling K. Brown, who most people know from This Is Us, a completely different character. He plays somebody so reprehensible in so many ways I think that's a real risk for an actor who is beloved for, you know, a role that's much more positive than this one. So, you know, kudos to them for taking on risky roles, because not everybody's going to like this movie, mainly because I think it's seen by some as mocking the church or, you know, bringing up sordid stories rather than, you know, the good that can happen in these places. And they don't understand it's satire either. In that way, it's it's a little mean-spirited, but I agree with you completely about Regina Hall, the smile and the, the looks on her face during certain scenes. And there's one scene in particular where she's at the mall shopping at Bathsheba's Bonnets. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> it is. It's very <laughs> and, funny. And she runs into a former congregant. And at first, you know, they put the woman's name under it, Danetta, whatever her name is, and then under it, congregant. And then when the two women are talking, it is so low level, insulting in very many ways. They're, they're sparring while being very polite and smiling at each other. It's such a great scene because you understand every put down 
and every dig, but it's done so skillfully and, you know, like church ladies, it's just an absolutely perfect scene. I think it's one of the best scenes in the film because the other characters, she is a good and proper church lady and everything, the, the costuming, the line readings, the delivery, it's, it's pitch perfect there because they are smiling at each other. Well, oh, sister so-and-so, haven't seen you for a long time and this and that. Everything is so polite and so nice on the surface, but there are digs. They're really sort of sparring, Maria. That's the perfect word choice. They really are sparring with each other. And yet on the surface, everything is sweet and so on. And that actually speaks to one of the best aspects of the film, certainly of uh, Regina Hall's character, is that she's trying to hold it together. She's trying to be, you know, the pastor's wife who, who does everything she should and so on. But there are times where, you know, uh, things kind of pop out or break out or, you know, you can only hold that face for so long. And we see some of the moments where the husband and wife, of course, will overtly spar. Uh, but times even when in public, she just has trouble holding it in anymore. The, the boiling point, as I like to call it. And so oftentimes in, in relatively minor social encounters, you're shopping at the mall and you run into a former congregant and everything is, you know, on the surface, polite and really sweet. But what's percolating just below that or through that, the film would benefit from more scenes like that. A lot of the other scenes are just too blunt and too obvious and too repetitious. It's just, you know, when, when you see how like the media has reported on the scandal, okay, we get it, but we don't ever really go a whole lot deeper with the scandal. We just sort of get that, what I keep calling, I'm reiterating my use of the word reiteration. We just keep getting variations on that throughout. You need to go somehow deeper, either, either into their background as the characters, as the pastor and the wife, or somehow take the story forward in a way. And again, I just think it's a matter of, of a very mixed blessing, speaking in non-religious terms, about how you have you know, a short film premise, and then you've got to take it to feature length. You've got to do something more with it. You can't just keep like circling around with the same few things. And so I noticed now when I, I watch the film with a fair sized audience, and I don't always talk about audience response because sometimes there isn't much, right? You know, not a whole lot to say, but this is a case where people were laughing a lot at the early scenes, and the theater is rather quiet for the rest of the film, because I, I felt like I'd, I'd already laughed at them sitting in thrones, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the 10th iteration, I'm not gonna laugh again, I'm just gonna smile a little bit. And, and, and the smile is not exactly audible, is it? And so again, overall, the film is disappointing, but you know what, watch it for Regina Hall. I mean, you know, just, if you just watch it for that one performance, that's such an impressive performance. Now, you know, I almost always ask you, who do you think this movie was for? <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you who I think the movie is for, because I watched it twice. I watched it the first time. It's on Peacock, by the way, if, if anybody just wants to stream it. I watched it the first time. And then I found myself thinking about it a lot because I actually was involved in a fundamentalist church back in the day during the prosperity gospel days. And so was my best friend. So I was like, well, I've got to watch it with her. So we watched it together. And we really thought it was an amazing movie. Just the things that it brought out that, you know, people don't usually talk about, but if you've been through it, you see it. We thought things were just right on the money, especially that scene with Regina Hall and the former congregate. I think it, it's meant for people who, who've lived through something like that because that's who the satire would work for. I don't think it's for people who think it's ridiculous or silly or whatever, or because it does go into a lot of hypocrisy issues, but that's not something people want to watch satire for. I don't think that that's the audience at all. Well, Marie, let me pick up on, on the very good points you're making here. The writer and director of the film 
and her twin sister, who's the producer of it. I mean, they really, they work as twins should <laughs> together on these things. But the two of them, actually, they grew up raised within a Southern Baptist tradition in Atlanta. So this is known subject matter for them. They're not just taking on a, a project. This is something they live through. And, and the film does have that, that knowing sense to it. So when they're, what they're satirizing, in other words, is something they know personally. Moreover, they were basing the story on a real-life case that it had taken place involving a pastor who had sinned, a scandal, in 2010. So there's sort of that real-life basis to it there. And we, all of us, whether we're watching feature films or documentary films, we've all had exposure, whether I've never been in a fundamentalist church, but, you know, from what I've read and seen, they really do capture that ambiance very well. So we can think about the real life basis for something like this, or moreover, a documentary treatment of it, not the mock documentary, if you will, within the film, but think of like Eyes of Tammy Faye or something. When you think about what's the public face that the pastor's wife will present. But then as we start to get a sense of what the inner reality is, particularly if it's a sinning husband, you know, how does she keep the game face on? And Tammy Faye's case, there's so much makeup and that's going to sort of be like a mask on you there. But Marie raises a good point as to, well, you know, how should this be treated satirically? Because you don't necessarily want to make it seem like you're anti-religion, you know, that you're, and Marie, this is a delicate point, isn't it? Because you don't want to make it seem like you're making fun of religion per se, but certainly within that kind of mega church with the sort of prosperity gospel they're espousing, the hypocrisy is what you should be able to make fun of. If they're espousing all these values and for the sake of discussion, accept the values and, and go from there. But what if they don't like adhere to their own value system by way of just, I'm not even talking prosperity gospel here, I'm just talking gospel. If they don't adhere to the very tenets, the very basic core principles of that gospel, then I think it is fair game. So either not just make a negative comment, but how can you not be somewhat satirical if you see examples of hypocrisy, right? Right. That's a really good point. And I'm really glad you brought up The Eyes of Tammy Faye, because I also thought that was a very well acted movie. But that has a built in audience, I think, because she was so well known that there will always be people who would want to know the story behind the story. And it dealt with the same topics, but somehow it was much more sympathetic, even though there are moments where she looks terrible or says something ridiculous. Well, Marie, you know why it seems stronger and just seems more compelling is the fact that that's a case where there's a really strong, what I call documentary core to it. When you're watching a movie like Eyes of Tammy Faye, you really feel like you are watching her, right? You really, you really feel like this is the person. And so as you're watching it, there's a kind of fusion of documentary, strictly speaking, what's documentary and a fictionalized treatment. In that film, they really are fused together in such a way that I watch a film like that as a documentary. I feel like this is the person. And, you know, somebody can point out ways in which, you know, the material is handled. And I say, OK, fine, this and that. But I really feel like I'm watching Tammy Faye. Like I'm watching. I mean, let me get your thoughts on this, because that's a case where, like, you know, we can talk about like feature film treatments of documentary subjects, but when they're really handled well, as I talk about the feature film, I feel like I'm talking about a documentary, like here's who she is, here's here's her relationship with the husband and so on. And, you know, I really like absolutely believe what I'm watching it, when you have, you know, really strong writing and directing and all that, but just simply the fact that that documentary subject is presented to you in such a convincing way that, you know, even if it's a fictionalized treatment of the person, I feel like that's who she is. What do you think about that? Because that's where, again, even though, you know, as, as a teacher, I'm always making distinctions between documentary and fiction. But when you have like a really compelling story like that, it kind of melts together, doesn't it? 
It does. And one thing the eyes of Tammy Faye had going for it was, and it did win an Academy Award for costuming makeup and <laughs> deserved it because it really shows the progression of Tammy Faye wearing more and more extreme makeup as she goes through her life in the film and the clothes too. In fact, at one point it was in the nineties in the movie. And I was like, oh my God, I'm pretty sure I had that jacket, you know, it's <laughs> some zebra thing, but there's moments where you're, you're seeing what you have already seen while it was happening. So I agree with you. The documentary aspect of it was very well done, but there was so much to work with there because, you know, she was so cartoonish in the end with the, with the makeup. Well, she wasn't, but that documentary quality is what always impresses me with that film. And the joke I make about it, too, is because it's so true to her life. Yeah, this is a document of Tammy Faye. But what the joke I make is actually I'm convinced that half of the budget went for her makeup. You know, it just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's applied so thickly there. And yet, you know, when you look at actual documentary films about Tammy Faye, and then if you look at fictionalized treatments of it, put those images side by side, if you will, and it's all on the same level, you know, it's, it's just, and that's where it succeeds. In this film, I just felt like, I know there's a real life basis to it and, and they know the subject matter, but sometimes it just seemed like silly without being particularly funny. Do you want to pick up on this? Because there are a lot of scenes that are definitely silly, but not particularly funny and not particularly insightful. I'm not learning anything more about the characters. It's just regurgitating things we've already had about them. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that is a flaw in the movie. One point I want to make, though, the similarity between the Tammy Faye movie and Honk for Jesus is, you know, you have to take a stand in terms of whose story you're telling. And, you know, a different narrator would have made Tammy Faye into a villain. It's much more her story as she's the sympathetic character. And they do the same thing in Honk for Jesus because Regina Hall's character is very sympathetic in kind of the same way. It keeps coming back around to her point of view. And she gets a wonderful speech at the end. I don't want to give anything away about the speech, but she gives a wonderful impassioned speech at the end that is so on the nose. Honestly, she's definitely going to be nominated for an Oscar for this performance, if not win. She's the one to beat. Give me an example of one of the silly scenes that you mean. Okay, I'll give, I'll give an example of that. As the disgraced pastor is trying to rebuild the church, He's literally like out on the road with a sign and with a megaphone shouting, you know, sh shouting into the microphone, trying to get driver's attention. There are many scenes actually giving you that basic situation. And yet, first of all, like, would they even do that? The cars are just driving by. I don't know how effective that would be, you know, to hold up a sign or to shout into a microphone. And it's silly in terms of some of the interactions, but it does, it's not particularly illuminating in any way. It's just uh, repetitious that way. And for me, it becomes almost like a live action cartoon at that point, you know, where I'm thinking, OK, it's just not all that laugh out loud funny here. And then I've been seeing similar scenes. That's where when you take a, a film like Eyes of Tammy Faye, it's so much better because it's, there is some inherent silliness or, or extremity in a story like that. Right. Extreme makeup. Let's call it that extreme makeup. But that's a case where as I'm watching it, I feel like I'm watching a documentary scene by scene. that This is what it was like. And whether I'm laughing or not, I'm believing, okay? Speaking of belief, I'm believing. When I watch some of the comparable scenes in Home for Jesus, I feel like I'm watching a setup. I'm watching a sketch. I'm watching, you know, the, the writer and, and, and writers and director and so on, like, you know, crafting the scene and, and you can you get a sense of the blocking of it and the fact that they're going for laughs there. That's a very different phenomenon, isn't it? It's, it's the, the difference between when you know you're watching a film, okay, it's based on real cases and, and, and real situations, 
but it's just like, like sketch comedy almost in those scenes. Contrast that with Eyes of Tammy Faye, where, you know, as you're watching it, you really feel like this is essentially documentary. This is showing her as she was, as she is. And I'm believing in that every moment of it. So whether I laugh or not, I have total credence. I'm believing in what I'm watching there. And that can be quite moving and also quite intriguing because in a film like that, you know, when you think about how they, they work with the cast and so on, to make you see that person in a way that, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, inherently quasi-cartoonish because of all the makeup, all the extreme costuming. But you know what? That is how the woman looked, right? That's how she behaved. So that's documentary truth there. But if you can sense that there's like some substance to this character, that really pays off. The only substance in, in Home for Jesus is, as we keep saying, that with the Regina Hall character, the performance, you know, actually brings out more in the character than, than exists in the script. That's the actor bringing out traits, bringing out things that I don't think are like fully in, at least in the script of dialogue, not quite there. So again, the one film is clearly a silly fiction. The other one has a kind of documentary believability and, and, and verisimilitude. This is like watching a documentary. This is the woman. About that scene that you're talking about where Sterling K. Brown is, you know, yelling into a microphone, trying to get people's attention. I thought that was meant to show what a sideshow act he was, almost a carnival barker. And also that because he didn't have a congregation, he still needed to talk to people. He still wanted that microphone. So yeah, he just man yells at cloud. No, Marie, you're absolutely right about that. But think about it. You're absolutely, I love the expression carnival barker. He really is essentially. But what happens when the carnival barker does his act, does his routine, calling for a crowd, getting people into the tent, if you will, at the circus. And, and then you have a second or, or a tenth scene where he's doing the same thing, right? That's the point I'm making. That, you know, at that tenth iteration, he's not getting a crowd for one thing. And he's starting to lose the crowd that the, that the movie should have, you know, for watching. I mean, what do you think of that? Because it seems to me, again, this, this is a film that gets stretched kind of thin at, at that narrative level. Yeah, I think they probably could have cut down the instances of showing that. I thought it was meant to show, in a way, how increasingly delusional he was. But I think we should move on to talk about movies made about Queen Elizabeth II now that she is no longer with us. And I know, Mike, that you know all about The King's Speech and The Queen, two movies that I absolutely love. So we'll have a chance to talk really briefly about that. I wanted to mention, though, if you haven't seen it, check out a movie called A Royal Night Out in 2015, because it is about VE Day and Queen Elizabeth and, and Princess Margaret, well, she's not the queen yet. They're both princesses at this time. They go out to, you know, mingle with people and celebrate and just get to be regular teenagers. Really fun movie. And of course, I've seen The Crown, and I know that you don't watch that show, but wonderful progression through the years of Queen Elizabeth's life with wonderful people playing her, Claire Foy and Elda Staunton. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful series. But King's Speech shows you a very young child, Elizabeth and Margaret. And, you know, one day it's their father's just dad. And then the next day they have to re uh, dress him as the king. So very, very powerful to see that portrayal and, and how that would have seemed to a, a young child. And then, of course, there's the queen with Helen Mirren in it. And as far as I'm concerned, that woman can do no wrong. And she's absolutely fantastic as Queen Elizabeth dealing with the death of Diana. Thank you. Those are all important observations. I want to start off with a personal observation of my own. I actually saw Queen Elizabeth II once in 1991 during her state visit to Washington when she was visiting the Folger Library to see their Shakespeare folios. 
you know, I was there to, to watch because I wanted to see the queen. And she was about 30 feet away. And when she got out of the car, the first thing I noticed was, yes, she is really short. But we did get the royal wave. We were able to wave back and forth there. And that meant a whole lot to me. Speaking of her short stature on that same visit, you may recall, when she was later at, at the White House, major faux pas at the White House, they didn't put out a little box for her to stand on. So when she was behind the podium, all you could see in the resulting video and photographic images was just her hat popping up and down. And so it got captioned in the photos, the talking hat. That became that, <laughs> that, that, became that, that performance. So that, on a personal note, to actually see her, there is something incredibly special about actually seeing someone like Queen Elizabeth. The second observation is more historical by way of, you know, filmic you know, documentation of her, whether documentaries or feature films or what have you. In the early 50s, television was coming into its own. Her 1953 coronation was telecast worldwide. It was one of the events in terms of TV news that helped to make TV news TV news. That's a really important thing. And, and so throughout her career, it was a visually well-documented reign that she had. And so even though she tended to be somewhat distant or aloof in many occasions, the cameras were there when they needed to be there for major events. The thing I'd want to focus on most is what Marie mentioned, particularly with the Queen. You know, I've met Helen Mirren. She can do no wrong. Terrific actor. And, you know, as Queen Elizabeth II, she's so moving in that when, you know, after Diana's died and the Queen belatedly greets the public and looks at the flowers by the palace gate and all that, that is an incredibly moving sequence. I mean, of all the feature film treatments of Queen Elizabeth, that scene, I think, is the single most powerful one, where Queen Elizabeth belatedly acknowledges what Diana meant to the people. It's the moment itself, but also, of course, Helen Mirren's performance. So I think if you're only going to watch like one thing to commemorate her passing, I would think it would be the film, The Queen, and, and just particularly for that scene and throughout the film, particularly that scene. The other great thing about The Queen, the movie, is that you get to see sides of Elizabeth that have been, they're well known, but it was just good to see anyway. The fact that she knew how to fix a car engine, for example, when she takes the Jeep out and then it gets stuck. And, you know, she's, you get a real sense for the metal of this woman, that she was a tough person. She persevered through some really tough times. She sat on the throne for longer than anybody expected, especially Charles. And it really gives her a humanity, especially since she has to sort of admit that she was wrong about how she was going about things. She thought this was a family matter. This is something for Diana's family to have the privacy to handle without a whole lot of fanfare. She didn't realize that people were expecting her to make more of a, a statement. And because it's a real person, it's difficult to have a story arc where you see somebody change or grow because it's, you know, it's somebody's actual life, but extremely well done in terms of this movie. By the way, they did ask Helen Mirren to play Queen Elizabeth in The Crown, and she basically said, no, I've already done that. Let somebody else do it. So, of course, like I said, they had Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman and Imelda Staunton, and they all do a good job of looking a little bit like her. But nobody can beat Helen Mirren in The Queen. She gets the hair right. She gets the facial expressions right. And she apparently studied her very carefully to put that performance across. And Helen Mirren won the Academy Award for that, that role. So all the more reason, you know, if you haven't seen it yet or you want to see it again, this is perhaps the best way cinematically to commemorate the Queen's passing. I agree. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.potandbeheat.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.